within a bleak and dismal swamp, hidden beneath its murky waters, lies the headquarters of the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Doom. Hello and welcome to Camping with Owlbears. I am the Lonely Adventurer. Just a brief game update today. Well, I say brief. I've got eight voice messages and I'm going to try to play uh, all of them and respond where appropriate. So this might actually end up being a long uh, episode. Several of them are from Joe Richter of Hindsightless and they are all labeled Pathfinder. So whoops, I probably should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm sure he's got some, some really good points to make. Uh, one, I'm, I haven't listened to any of them yet, uh, any of the many voicemails, but uh, I am. a thought occurred to me as I was watching them literally pile up on my phone as he left them that my working theory that I, or my, my question, I guess, is just what is the market for Pathfinder 2 when... Uh, you've already got games doing similar things, specifically 5th edition, uh, although definitely in a much less crunchy way. Uh, my question was, what is the market for that? And then it occurred to me later that you could say the same thing about the bulk of OSR games, and yet there are many of them. Uh, but what really is the difference between Lamentations of the Flame Princess, uh, Basic Fantasy RPG, and Old School Essentials? They're all drawing on the basic expert rules and just packaging them differently. Um, I suppose in the case of basic fantasy, they are allowing you to separate race, uh, character species from class. Uh, however, I know there's a, a book that's either out or coming out as part of the old school essentials that also allows you to do that. So why, why do these books continue to be successful also when there are already other products out there doing the same thing? So, I mean, that might be the beginning and the ending of my, my query into Pathfinder, but I look forward to seeing what joe has to say let's see so the owlbear heist crew are at it again we finally got together after a bunch of delays and some scheduling problems and not a whole heck of a lot happened uh in their last session they ended up in a new world um encountered a strange creature that burrowed up out of the earth and attacked a flock of sheep-like creatures uh, they rescued the young shepherd uh, who was tending them, and she brought them back to her family's farm. And by way of thanks, they spent the evening uh, with the family who, who fed and sheltered them for the night and uh, pointed them towards the town of Haven. Uh, they assume, like other travelers on the road, that the characters uh, are not here by accident, but are actually inbound towards the town of Haven for uh, an annual festival that is about to kick off in a few days. Um... And I think I mentioned this last time, but I don't think I put the two together specifically. Or maybe I did. Who knows? I can't be bothered to go back and look. <laughs> Guerrilla podcasting, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm modifying a 5th edition adventure one-shot called uh, Boulay Storm. And it is essentially a reimagining of the movie Jaws. Uh, obviously, though, uh, instead of sharks, it is the infamous Dungeons & Dragons land shark, the Boulay. And uh, it's just a fun little... A fun little romp, I guess. Romp. Oh, that's an interesting choice of words on my part. <laughs> anyway, so having uh, spent the night at the Yamato farm, they head 
to town. And it's only a six mile trip, but I'm trying to get across the idea that the artificial train, although they do not know it is artificial, but the artificial train of the island, this, uh, this O'Neill McKendry cylinder that they find themselves in, uh, is deliberately stacked, very vertical landscapes. Um, and, and you can listen to my Gygax, my first Gygax 75 to kind of get the, the rundown on that. But it takes a long time to get anywhere. There's a lot of, for every mile you travel forward, you're, you're traveling between two and four miles vertically uh, as you head up and down these windy paths. And lines of sight are extremely limited in most places, unless you can get to uh, an area of some great height. But uh, yeah, so they were on the road and they were passing, coming through a a little a hilly pass where they stumped, they discovered uh, another small shrine to an unknown god. There were lots of little offerings left to it, so they decided, uh, left at the side of the road, and they decided to investigate. And they determined that everything that was there was, was quite old, but um, essentially the, the language was strange to them, but they were able to make out enough to understand that they were just kind of little... Uh, wishes for safe travels and uh, pleas to the, that deity to, to watch over them and uh, protect them on their journeys and uh, some of them were quite in depth some of them were just kind of little offhand notes uh, depending on the piety of the person li- leaving them and while this was happening a strange figure stepped from behind a large outcropping wearing a massive uh, hat that completely obscured their faces there were uh, kind of uh, a veil that hung down off of this giant pope hat uh, that covered most of their face and uh, he was very solicitous and sinister and uh, tried to talk them into coming back to his shrine for tea and refreshments uh, to wash away the dust of the road and uh, refresh themselves before continuing on to Haven and uh, it did not go well <laughs> uh, he was quite obviously e- evil uh, or uh, not right um, I made no pretenses at him being normal, so I definitely hammed it up a lot. Set off a lot of trigger warnings amongst the, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, red flags amongst the players, and uh, they opted not to follow, at which point a couple of his uh, disciples stepped out from behind other rocks and uh, blocked the path. And they did, the party did their best to just sort of blow him off and go their own way. Uh, but I knew, <laughs> a little metagaming, uh, I knew that it was going to be a lot of uh, NPC interactions and role-playing for the rest of the session and probably most of the next. And uh, several, as I've said before, several of my players get very antsy if they don't get to whack something every session. So my initial intent was just to have a little ambush on the road, some bandits. But uh, cults are a factor in... Uh, the perpetual valley, the habitat ring of this O'Neill seal, the O'Neill cylinder. And so at the last moment, I decided to make them cultists, uh, literally the last moment, about 10 minutes before the game started. But uh, luckily, I have uh, working hands and access to Google, and I recalled that Skirples wrote up uh, D8 Gonzo cults for your D&D game on his excellent blog, Coins and Scrolls. So I headed over there real quick. One of the underlying themes to the setting of the island is that portions of the world have gone a little haywire, uh, cancerous growth, if you will, within the, the regulatory and maintenance systems of the space station. And this leads to uh, areas that are outrageously overgrown with a giant flora and uh, mutated fauna and just strange, strange things. And certain cults have really embraced 
this, uh, it's really, it's an infection. So uh, blight priests and uh, cultists of the ghost root. The ghost root is something I have to kind of really uh, drill in on and define better as I work through the Gygax 75 workbook. But basically, my thinking is that it's sort of like a mycelial network, like a, like a fungus growing under the surface of the world. Um, and it essentially handles all of the complex systems that you would find in a normal and a real ecosystem. Uh, but because areas of it have gone wrong, uh, strange things happen sometimes. And some of these cults have really embraced that strangeness and uh, purposefully infect themselves. There's a little, I guess there's a little bit of uh, Warhammer in there, somewhere between Nurgle and Slanesh, I guess. Uh, if you're familiar with those uh, deities from that property, um, not quite as over the top, but similar ideas that the the mutations bring change. Change is a kind of rebirth, and and in order for the the people of the island to move forward, they all have to embrace it. And this is also kind of a a theme borrowed from uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, where you have a post-apocalyptic human society and much of the planet has been overrun by the toxic jungle and which is full of just immense uh, insects and bugs and critters that uh, are hostile towards humanity and it's for most of the story now, spoilers here so if you if you ever plan on reading this or even watching the uh, the film which is a much less well-developed uh, version of the manga but still worth watching um, it turns out that they're not actually evil. They are uh, a mechanism put in place either by humans or by the planet itself, I'm, I don't recall, to uh, clean up the mess that humanity made. And basically they are, to really simplify, they're eating everything and then spitting it out the other end. And uh, once it comes out the other end, it has been uh, purified and cleaned and is uh, ready for life anew to begin. Uh, so it's not quite as sinister and gross as the uh, as the Warhammer versions of, of these concepts. Uh, much more naturalistic. But these cults, ooh, they're psychos. So uh, back to Coins and Scrolls, though, and Skirples. So one of the Gonzo cults on there is the Cult of True Healing, uh, in which they're just normal cultists, but they have the ability to cast Cure Wounds uh, when they make a successful touch attack against someone. And if they heal them above, per, per scruples, if they heal them above maximum hit points, uh, they gain a random mutation. Uh, and he's got a, a table of 5,000 random mutations, uh, some better than others, but they're all interesting, that's for sure. And I thought that was a little too much, considering this was just a, a small diversion before the real uh, adventure. So I modified that a bit uh, so that the creature who was touched by them made a constitution save and if they passed it they did not uh they they managed to resist the mutation so luckily no one there while there were several touches made uh, no one was mutated and uh kazim the the cult leader uh, he had the ability to cast this at range and so yeah so a little fun little combat ensued and then one of my players made a comment that uh made me realize i left something out of the bibliography for the island that I didn't even think of putting in there. But uh, I was describing the sensation when they were touched by this cultist of uh, like when you get butterflies in your stomach. But instead of butterflies, it was snakes, and the snakes were real. Uh, and they said, oh, like that scene in Annihilation where they cut the guy's stomach open and there's just all kinds of worms and tubers, uh, snakes and stuff writhing around in there. And it was the perfect uh, visual 
And if you've never seen the film Annihilation, I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's a really good movie. Uh, works on on a lot of levels. And I, movies with Mikey on uh, YouTube has a great kind of uh, peek under the hood to the the multiple the parallel stories uh, that are happening in it that you may not pick up on on your first viewing. And in that film, an alien has landed on Earth. It is neither good nor bad. It is just is what it is. And it has transformed a section of the world uh, into this strange, uh, dreamlike setting where the DNA of various plants and animals are all mixing together and creating new things. And they're all horrible, but, uh, but also beautiful at the same time. So it's a, it's a fantastic film. And I'm going to have to, as I said, I'll have to add that to the, uh, the bibliography for the island. And it was a great visual. But... Uh, yeah, so the they survived the fight. Uh, one other little note with the the cultists: when they died on the next round, they exploded, uh, spraying everyone within a five who was in a, within five feet of them with a kind of an acid bile. Um, so it was a, a it added a neat little tactical element to the to the combat uh, as they were plowing through these low level cultists. They then had to get away from them to get at the other ones and uh, had fun with that. And eventually, they made it to the town of Haven. Um, which is a town built upon the ruins of something much greater than itself, uh, which is kind of a, another theme running through the island. Uh, we have these little communities of survivors. Well, you can't really call them survivors. The apocalypse happened 30 generations ago. It is no, it is no longer a post-apocalyptic setting, but more like, uh, well, like most Dungeons & Dragons settings, uh, Forgotten Realms being the most obvious, but I think most D&D settings are post-apocalyptic in that there's always these civilizations that came before and have left behind these amazing ruins and um, magical items that can no longer be produced and whatnot. Uh, and the island is no different. So uh, who knows what this uh, compound used to be, but uh, uh, in the, dominating the center of the town of Haven is this 30-story this statue of a, of a robed woman. Uh, several large ancient structures that have been repurposed by the inhabitants and then grown up all around that is this this colorful vibrant flavella uh kind of tucked in all the nooks and crannies of that space um so we had some fun with that and they were looking for a fellow by the name of nix who was a, a farmer yamato had told them about he was an exotic animal trainer in town and uh, I gave him an extremely stupid voice. I planted my tongue firmly at the top of my mouth, and I just gave him my best nerd voice and described him as wearing uh, Coke bottle stick goggles. And uh, I stole something from Rude Tales of Magic, uh, where he, his left hand was a hook, and his right hand, where his right hand should have been, was his left hand sewn on crudely. Uh, and he was just kind of a mess. I was thinking of like a Hagrid kind of character, someone who's been mauled and maimed by the many creatures that he loves and raises. Um, and we just had a lot of fun with that. Uh, they were surprised that he'd never heard of an owl bear before because uh, part of the thing with the island is there are no creatures like that here. But uh, there, are, well, there are creatures similar to that, but they are just uh, lines of bad code split out by the replicators uh, far beneath the ground. And uh, but he was fairly certain he could uh, he could get these uh, creatures safely hatched and uh, take care of them for a while. But it was going to be expensive. And so he asked for a down payment of 100 gold. And these guys have just transitioned from an economy based on the silver coin. And then I said, well, no problem. We've got 13,000 silver. We can, we can, we can afford that. Um, that was when they realized that their 13,000 silver was actually in a bank back in Bebenberg Keep on a completely different plane of existence. Uh, so there goes that money. I mean, it'll be accruing interest if they ever get back, I guess. 
uh, on hand, they had a thousand silver coins that they had looted from the body of a roper that they confronted. Uh, there had been, I think, 5,000, but they could only carry 1,000. And that worked out to about, at my exchange rate of uh, 50 silver per one gold, I believe that's 20 gold. So they were way shy. So he took it as a down payment, and he took the eggs, and then Nick sent them on their way and, and said he'd give them a week to raise the rest of the, of the retainer. Uh, otherwise, he would just keep the eggs. Uh, and that was a conversation of a good 10 minutes or so. I actually took a bio break while the, while, while the players were working over that and had a little snack and... Uh, came came back uh, to them with a plan worked out uh at which point they decide to head into town to report the monster attack near the yamato farm to brady the uh, the marshal the bailiff of the town uh and also seek employment and a place to stay uh we had some fun with the the crowds uh that was actually where, that was where we stopped the game at that point they never made it to brady just the decision to go find them uh and report the monster uh, but before that, coming into town, before they met Nix, the animal trainer, uh, they had uh, an unexpected and fun run-in with a, kind of a foil group of uh, another adventuring party. They had joined the queue of folks. Uh, well, as they came down the, the dirt track from the farm and joined the, pa- the wide paved road that led to Haven, uh, the first thing they encountered was a, a dwarf sleeping off a, a major drunk uh, under a... Uh, under a shrub by another roadside shrine uh, had some um, after turning him on his side and making sure I wasn't going to drown in his vomit had a very kind of awkward interaction with him uh, but then just decided to leave him there uh, which uh, it was more fun for me than for them because I know he's going to come back and, and play a part in this uh, this current uh, little adventure that they're on and then headed into town and while they were waiting to get through the gates with uh, other farmers coming in for the festival and other adventurers who were on the road uh, i made a point of kind of just talking up just how different this was from the very humanocentric uh world that they had left uh, just all kinds of races and, and species um, and also just lots of adventurers like themselves uh not being treated like the scum of the earth as they were in pebbenberg uh, at least not yet and uh out the other way came uh an officious group of uh, well-equipped, uh, obviously rich adventurers who are on their way somewhere to do some sort of adventure thing. Uh, leading them was a man in uh, gleaming plate armor with uh, brass trim, uh, and at his side was a sorceress in, in fancy red leather armor. And, uh, and this guy was uh, just—I uh, played him up like a like a like a the stereotype of a, an, Eng- uh, an upper-class English snob, uh, and he had his goons kind of. Uh, pushing through the crowd, making physically making a hole for him. Uh, the comparison was made to uh, Draco Malfoy from, from Harry Potter. So uh, Crab and Goyle are the new unofficial names of his two sidekicks, uh, his, his muscle. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure who the, who the woman would be. Maybe that's Be-a- Bella. Oh, I can't remember the name of any of the Harry Potter people right now, except for Crab and Goyle. And anyway, <clears throat> the party decided to put Maul's recovered ball bearings to good use and decided to air quotes uh accidentally spill them on the road in front of this uh this jerk and uh in the hopes of tripping him up and so i made a few secret dm rolls and he did not notice no one noticed and uh he did him very badly on his uh, his deck save and so he ended up slipping on the ball bearings and tumbling off the side of the road into the filthy ditch uh and landing in all the things you would expect to find uh at the side of a uh dank medieval road um 
and the crowd would have thought that was great. The players thought that was great. And anyway, and then on into town and off to Nick's. So sorry, that was a very rambly, uh, disorganized uh, recap of our session. But that's uh, the kind of morning I'm having. I'm, I'm a little preoccupied. I'm, I'm out at the VMFA, as usual, drinking my coffee. Uh, enjoying the park but uh there are thick gray clouds overhead and though my phone says it's not going to rain uh the occasional splatter of uh wet from above is telling me otherwise and i have a feeling that deciding to sit down and drink my coffee and record this is probably going to bite me in the butt on my way home but we'll see yeah so that's our recap we're getting together again this weekend and we'll have more then and i think next episode will be the week two of uh the gygax 75 workbook Now let me uh, take a listen to those messages and uh, we'll see what people have to say. Boop! All right, I am back home now. Turns out it wasn't the weather that was my downfall. It was just my failing middle-aged body. Uh, Important bit of advice, the best advice I can give to anyone as they approach the age of 40 is to never pass up the opportunity to use a restroom. I had that second cup of coffee and my bladder decided it was time to go home in a hurry. So I I hustled home, took a bio break from the podcast. Is that too much information? A little TMI? Sorry about that. And uh, now let's get to those calls. First up is Joe Richter from Hindsightless. What's up, Lonely Adventure? All right, let's talk some Pathfinder 2. So my group, we were pretty pretty strong pathfinder one fans and we have been playing pathfinder two now since actually before the play test came out because we had a buddy who was working at paizo so we got it we got it a little bit early anyway so the reason we switched wasn't because we were disappointed or felt that pathfinder one was lacking something or needed change we switched because we wanted. We heard there was a new edition came out, and we've been talking about podcasting, and so we switched because we wanted to be the first podcast doing Pathfinder Two and uh, Homebrew actual play kind of thing, and we were, and that was really cool. But so now we've been playing Pathfinder Two for almost two years now, and so my advice after spending almost two years with the game is don't (laughs) don't read it you do not need to do a close read man the book it's it's way too goddamn long to start with there's a whole big chapter on the world and the setting i don't need that in my books uh that could be a separate book altogether the layout of the book it might look good at first but if you're actually trying to use it to build a character to look something up it's not intuitive at all things are scattered in weird places feats are in weird places abilities spells they're all scattered all over the place the table of contents is useless it's the worst table of contents i've seen in any role-playing book ever it's not even a table of contents it's a table of vague sections but yeah like the system itself is okay they had some good ideas just the execution was not there is 5e the death of pathfinder i mean Paizo sales have plummeted. They're not doing very good. I don't think Pathfinder 2 was the correct 
answer. Pathfinder needed to come out with a second edition. They had the same edition for 10 years, which is amazing. Uh, I don't, well, I, I know there's not an edition of D&D that went 10 years before a new edition came out. So mad props to Paizo. They filled a void. They did it amazingly. For a while there, Pathfinder was number one among the role-playing games. And it's not anymore, not even close. So yeah, like I just... <clears throat> I mean, once we're done, once my group is done with our current adventure, we're we're going to be leaving Pathfinder Two for for sure. I, it's just it's it's too much of a pain in the ass anyway, man. Great stuff. Peace out. Whoa, that is not what I was expecting, Joe. Uh, but great calling. Thank you. Uh, I, that's what I love about the calls. You never know what you're going to get. I was expecting to be. Uh, taken to school on why Pathfinder 2nd Edition was amazing and I should give it a fair shake and, and really dive into it, but uh, well, maybe I will in the future anyway, just out of uh, curiosity, but uh, for now I guess that PDF will just sit there unread for a while. Uh, something you said came to mind with the, all the world information that they crammed in that you just don't need. One of those areas where I think 4th Edition Dungeons & Dragons did a really good job was with their example setting that they gave you in the DMG. It was just their simple points of light, uh, Nentir Valley setting. And it was enough information to make it very interesting, yet it was still, uh, enough of it was unexplained and mysterious to make me want to learn more. And I was, I'm not uh, super familiar with 4th edition. I didn't play a whole lot of it and was not really into D&D at all at that point. Um, but I know that through later material, it ended up getting expanded, expanded, and it became uh, much like the Forgotten Realms, where every corner of it was crammed with some kind of something. And that the the, the downside of that is that all the mystery goes away, and then you do, it's been over-explained, and there's no reason to explore it. Um, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I always seem to bounce off the Forgotten Realms settings. There's been so many people down through the years adding to it, and it's a lot of uh, cooks in the kitchen and none of them coordinating. And to me, it's just a big, giant mess that makes no sense. Um, I've tried uh, and failed several times to start recent games in the, uh, the fifth edition setting uh, of the, the Sword Coast in, uh, in FR. And I just, I can't get past the fact that I don't understand how these city-states that they have set up work. And maybe that's just me. You know, I, I like to understand the organization. I like to know what's happening behind the scenes and why. And a lot of it just feels very arbitrary and poorly thought out. And so I just, I, I can't get invested in it. I don't know. But anyway, thank you for the call-in. Uh, let's move on. Damn it, dude. Now you're going to make me have to get back to my Gygax 77. I think we actually started about the same time, just kind of randomly. But I've, you know, I got this part two and I've kind of, I haven't done much on it this week and it's already Saturday. But your world sounds rad, man. And so I, I need to, I need to get back to mine. So thank you for the kick in the ass. <laughs> Peace out. Oh, I almost forgot to comment on this part. Uh, yeah, thanks. I'm glad you're enjoying uh, the Gygax 75. 75, 77? Now you've got me questioning. I'm going to have to go open up the document. <laughs> I think I called it the Gygax 74 challenge uh, the first time I mentioned it. I'm pretty sure it's 75, but I, I could definitely be wrong. Anyway, yeah, I I'm having a lot of fun with it, and it's uh, it's nice to have a little uh, structured RPG homework to uh, to whittle away at. 
at the end of the day. And I look forward to seeing uh, what you put out there, Joe. Uh, again, thanks for calling in. And now I think we're going to hear from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Hey there, I'm Jason here. Just want to say I'm enjoying your podcast. Always look forward to new episodes. Gygax 75 Challenge is definitely on my list of things to do. Um, of course, there's tons of sci-fi shows that have taken that and run with your kind of idea. Star Trek's probably done it. Um, of course, the best modern version of Star Trek that I've seen, because I haven't watched Picard, is um, um, I'm brain farting. What, what's Seth, what's his name's version of Star Trek? Doggone it. You know what I'm talking about. The, um, the Orville. They did it in that. And then, of course, Space 1999 has an episode with Elizabeth Taylor that hits this as well. And I recommend that episode. So, anyhow, talk to you later. Well, I never claimed it was an original idea, just just the one that got stuck in my head that I haven't been able to shake. And the best way to put those ideas to bed is to flesh them out, to fully develop them, and then you can stop obsessing over them. Um, Man, as you were hunting around for the title of Orville, I was afraid you were going to mention like one of the J.J. Abrams movies or something like that in regards to modern Star Trek. but then again, I don't recall an O'Neill cylinder in any of those. Though there is that space station that basically looks like a planet when you're when you're on it in the third film. And I actually did enjoy the third film because I enjoy most films that Edgar Wright and uh, Simon Pegg are involved in behind the scenes. Uh, still, it doesn't. It of all of the modern films, it is the one that feels the most like the old school Star Trek in that it's. Uh, kind of a like a really good episode of the original series I guess and it was the one where it didn't bother me that they brought in uh, contemporary music to uh, set the tone Um, I mean it helps that I grew up as a massive fan in the 90s as a Beastie Boys fan but uh, I don't know so maybe I'm biased there but uh, yeah and Picard um, without getting overly negative uh, I would just say don't waste your time it's not good television it's not a good story um one of the things i found with both discovery and picard is that there's a lot of in they they make an attempt to get a lot of intense uh emotional uh, gravitas out of certain scenes and characters except that they never take the time to foster any sort of uh, audience investment in those characters and so it just feels very forced and fake that's my my read anyway um, I was unable to finish Picard uh, Discovery, I, the first season is definitely worth watching, the second season ends with a lot of plot holes and a lot of inconsistencies that you may not notice if you just binge the whole thing because uh, events happen so quickly but if you go back and do a second watch and actually pay attention to the characters and the plots and what's going on um there is a lot that just makes no sense at all um i kind of got the impression that the, the writers did not really know how they wanted to wrap up that uh that season um it's the it's the it's the problem of the jj abrams uh, mystery box and that as long as you present a mystery every episode people will come back to see what happens next time but if you go into that blindly without a plan, uh, more often than not, the end result is just deeply unsatisfying in my experience. This is, it's bad world building, bad storytelling. And Picard is, suffers even more from this. And the whole thing just kind of feels like a strange 
vanity project for an elderly Patrick Stewart, which is uh, disappointing because he's someone who, from what I know of him, um, I've always been very impressed with him as a human being. And um, the next generation, I've watched that. I've watched that show multiple times through. And I'm still a big, despite the fact that many of the episodes are are objectively terrible, I think taken as a whole, it's just a, an incredible piece of, uh, of television. But anyway, thanks for the call in, Jason. Greetings, Lonely Adventurer, Goblin Sentiment here. Just listened to your last uh, podcast, that was very interesting. Um, I think you should rename your podcast Camping with Bad Code. <laughs> I really like that idea that an owlbear is uh, a a glitch in the matrix, essentially. That's a real neat take. Um, Just pick up a point um, about this 5e module. I think everyone likes getting feedback on their stuff, um, and hopefully they'll take it in the spirit you mean it to. I mean, earlier on in my my podcasts, I did an episode about the power of brevity, and I really believe in it. I think that it sounds like his module would be far, far better, or their module would be far, far better if it was about half or quarter the size. And maybe that'll be a learning point for them, but maybe that's not the 5e way, so maybe it's, you know, for them it's not the right advice. Anyway, cheers, bye. Hi Lonely, it's Goblin's Henchman here again. Um, hopefully you can't pick up too much of the dishwasher noise in this message. But I thought it was interesting what you were talking about, about you would have preferred to have died in that scenario. Um, that you described, where you'd made a mistake, essentially. And I kind of agree, because I was playing in a um, play-by-email campaign, and the GM basically fudged it such that we all got captured. And I didn't really like it. I actually, from that point on, found it very hard to engage with the character, because I kind of thought, well, they all should have been dead in that scenario, rather than captured. And so it sort of took a little bit away, a little bit bit away from it. I think the GM's a little worried by play-by-email. It's difficult to keep players, so you didn't want to kill them off and have the rest of the group dissolving. I mean, I kind of understand that to some degree. There goes the gurgling dishwasher. But, um, nope, more. Anyway. <laughs> um, uh, I might have to re- re-record this. We'll see. Mr. Henchman, always nice to hear from you. Yeah, I, I think if I can figure out a way to positively frame my critical feedback of the module I might go back and leave that review my first couple of passes which I just kept deleting were uh, (laughs) they they smacked of angry man at the keyboard up away past his bedtime ranting about (laughs) about RPGs Um, so I think I'm gonna give myself a little distance and uh, time and then maybe revisit it and see uh, if I can briefly uh, sum up the ways that I thought maybe it could be improved and you know maybe you're right maybe that isn't the 5e way I, I don't know um, but we'll see and yes also thank you for the call in uh, regarding uh, uh, missed opportunities for glorious deaths <laughs> uh, I, I I guess I have nothing really to add to that just that yeah I, again I would have preferred to die and roll up a new character it would have been just fine with me but uh, different people run different games, and uh, I really can't complain. Uh, the fellow running that game puts a lot of work into it and does a really great job. He's a he's a very good dungeon master, and uh, my wife and I have a lot of fun uh, with it. And now that we've moved online uh, to Zoom, we've we've noticed my wife and I anyway that the game is much more focused. There's six players in that game, and when we're all physically around the table, there's a lot of shenanigans happening and a lot of distractions. 
but with the Zoom meetings, we are all pretty well focused and, and you know, you have to actively pay attention when you are, when you are interacting that way uh, in a way that you don't have to when you're at the table. And, uh, yeah, so our games have actually gotten better. So I, I'm glad to still be in the game, but, yeah, definitely would like to be playing. Uh, did not be, I, again, like you. Oh, boy, sorry, rambling. <laughs> Uh, like you, I, I my investment in that character is, seems to have fizzled a bit because uh, in my mind he should be dead. But we'll we'll see. I I, I have faith in Jack's ability to to turn that around and uh, make me uh, fall in love with Seamus Blackfoot, the the surly pirate priest uh, again. Only time will tell. Hey, lonely adventurer. This is Rob, also known as Minion. Just a quick message, um, just a personal one, to say thank you for the messages. It's sort of really helped uh, motivate me um everything kind of went a bit quiet so it's nice to know that i'm not sort of just talking on uh, talking to myself uh, especially seeing as a lot of the episodes recently have been uh, getting a little bit kind of uh, unfocused or or perhaps um a bit too rambly but anyway um it's really nice to get some positive feedback and uh, thank you and i'll do uh, i'll try and get some time to listen to your podcasts and and um check them out because i haven't had the opportunity to to do that uh, as yet but anyway thank you very much all right cheers and that last one was menyon from confessions of a wee timorish bushi uh menyon i have a confession to make i have in my head been calling assuming your name was minion i've never actually seen it written out uh, <laughs> but I, I just listened to the episode uh, of your podcast uh where you explained that this was a uh, name of an elven character that you've uh, played in the past uh, so, I don't know. Apologies? It's funny? I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I've i really been enjoying uh, the episodes that you've put out. And uh, I'm glad that you are continuing to move forward with the podcast. It's been very enlightening and enjoyable. And thanks to everyone for calling in. We had uh, Joe Richter from Hindsightless, uh, Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and Goblin's Henchman from Goblin's Henchman. I guess that's it for now. I'm going to sign off, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Lonely Adventurer out.